0: What have we lost in our desire to win? (laughs) I'd say everything, everything.
1: Welcome to season two of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University. Which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with historian and New York Times best-selling author Kristen Cobus-Dumay about her book Jesus and John Wayne, now available in the new paperback edition. If you find the conversation helpful or any of our episodes helpful, feel free to take a moment to share the episode, leave us a five-star rating, or some sort of glowing review. In any case, Thanks so much for tuning in. About 10 years ago, I saw a documentary about steroids. This documentary, titled Bigger, Stronger, Faster, is narrated by Chris Bell. And in it, he weaves the story of his two brothers, one an aspiring pro wrestler, the other a competitive powerlifter, together with larger questions about steroid use in America. He points out that performance enhancement is very much a part of our culture. Students take medication for increased academic performance. Musicians take beta blockers to help with performance anxiety. We could go on. Performance enhancing drugs of all sorts contribute to a hundred billion dollar industry. Consider the fact that the phrase on steroids is part of our everyday language of description, a way of saying that something is bigger and better. Bell's diagnosis was that America is obsessed with strength. We are not just any country. We are a country on steroids. Steroids themselves, Bell argued, are a symptom of a deeper affliction our obsession with power and performance, with being bigger, faster, and stronger than everyone else, with winning, whatever the cost. It strikes me that once a year the American president is expected to stand in front of the nation and declare that the state of the Union. Is strong, no matter how bad things may seem, we are winners and we are winning. Now, don't get me wrong, I like to win as much as the next person. I certainly root for my sports teams to win. I also hope and pray that certain policies and ways of thinking will win broad public support for the good of our common life as I understand it. There is a difference between wanting to win and being willing to win at all costs, being willing to abandon virtue for the sake of winning being willing to justify or ignore evil as long as our side wins. The Christian faith, of course, offers a different vision of winning and losing, of smallness and greatness, of weakness and strength. Christians have too often opted for the other way to live, seeking to win whatever the cost. The real question though is this, what have we lost in our desire to win? Historians can help us answer this question by reminding us of the stubborn facts of history. In this case, the history is recent, on this episode narrated to us by our guest, Dr. Kristen Cobus-Dumay. Dr. Dumay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, has been the subject of many conversations within Christian circles and the wider world. When it came out in its new paperback edition this summer, it made it as high as number four on the New York Times bestsellers list. Part of the draw, I'm sure, is the provocative, even incendiary, subtitle. How white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. But don't let the subtitle stop you, because the history the book reviews has to do with models of Christian discipleship that are fueled as much by popular culture as by scripture. Christian faith, as it were, on steroids. As I read the book with students, colleagues, and friends, I found it challenging, troubling, and riveting. Whatever we make of the story that Dr. Dumais is telling, one thing is for sure. It cannot be dismissed. We hope that this conversation is generative for you in the best possible way. One final note. Upon listening back to the recording, I realized that this conversation at times took on an insider feel. Although I think that made for a better conversation, I also realized that many of our listeners may not be familiar with some of the elements we mentioned. So, just to be clear, my co host and I both teach at Dort University in Sioux Center, Iowa, in the Midwestern United States which is also the place where Dr. Dumais grew up and went to school. We also reference the Fruited Plain, a local coffee shop that keeps us caffeinated and sane, and KDCR, which up until this year was the local, distinctively Reformed Christian radio station housed at Dort. Dort itself is a historically Dutch Reformed institution with roots in the Christian Reformed Church, adjacent to evangelicalism, though intertwined in many ways within it. Indeed, the contour of this relationship is one of the topics that we discuss. So without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Kristen Kobus-Dumay. So I want to welcome two guests to the In All Things podcast. Uh, first is my co-host for this episode, Dr. Scott Culpepper, professor of history here at Dort University. And one particular area of interest for Scott is Christian popular culture, and he's working on something really interesting, which we won't get to talk about, but the Satanic Panic is something he's doing projects on right now. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for hosting this episode with me. Thank you, Justin. Glad to be here. So Scott also wrote the In All Things review of the book, which is by our featured guest, Dr. Kristen Kobus-Dumay. Dr. Dume is the professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She's the author of numerous articles. She is a former, in all things, editorial board member, but she is best known as the New York Times bestselling author of the book, just out this summer, in a new paperback edition, Jesus and John Wayne, which is sold more than 100,000 copies, and she is not supposed to be doing any more podcast <laughs> interviews, but she made an exception for us since Dort is her alma mater. Kristen, thanks so much for uh, making the time for us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
1: So let's uh talk briefly about the book, the major thesis. As a student of theology and culture, one of the primary takeaways that I had from the book, or at least when I describe it to people and tell them they should read it, uh, has to do with uh, cultural images of Christ, cultural Christology. In other words, I say, well, the image of Jesus that's been adopted by white evangelicalism looks like John Wayne. So you have a hyper masculine, no nonsense, tell it like it is counterpuncher. And so this book tells the story and shows the receipts for how that could be possible. What do you think of that framing of things? Is it right? What would you add? Or for those who haven't read the book, how would you describe some of the primary stories that you're wanting to tell?
0: Yeah. You know, I think that is kind of where, where the book ends up. That's not where I started off with this book. Uh, when I started this research, I simply was intrigued by, uh, discussions of Christian manhood back in the early two thousands. And I wanted to, uh, trace the history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism and just tell that story, uh, see where these ideas were coming from. Very early on, I, I was introduced to the book Wild at Heart by some of my students here at Calvin. And yeah, one of the first things I was really struck by when I read that book was, you know, this was supposedly a vision of Christian manhood And yet uh, there wasn't a whole lot of biblical exegesis in this book, to say the least. Uh, The inspiration really was coming from popular culture, from Hollywood movies, not just John Wayne. In fact, uh, Eldridge doesn't draw on John Wayne. His favorite is Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. But really these mythical uh, models of warrior masculinity. And that was intriguing to me as a scholar of gender in history, um, but also as a Christian, right? And that's where it kind of ends up to realize how these cultural depictions are, in fact, deeply formative. And they end up not just shaping people's visions of what it is to be a Christian man, but ultimately of what it is to be a Christian and um, what it, who Jesus is and what it means to follow Christ. So yeah, that's that's really where the book ends up. It's interesting
1: this morning when I went and got coffee at the Fruited Plain, which I think you know. Um, I was talking to uh, Laramie, who owns the Fruited Plain, and I said I was saying we were going to have this conversation. And he said to me, You know, it, the thing that I keep on thinking about is the cinematic aspect to all of this. So John Wayne is a cinematic character. And, you know, just as you answer that question for us, if you grew up in evangelical subculture, maybe you had a strange relationship with the movies. You know, I wasn't supposed to go to movies. Um, <laughs> Even when I went to Moody Bible Institute and while I was there, there was a no movie rule. And so there's this sort of interesting rejection of cinema. And yet the models are so clearly cinematic. How do you think that fits together?
0: No, that's really true because uh, in many conservative evangelical circles, uh, you know, Hollywood is is kind of considered. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's secular. It's the culture that we are supposed to oppose, that we are supposed to isolate ourselves from. Um, that's definitely a motif here. But then there are always exceptions that are made, exceptions for the really good stories, for the really inspirational films. You know, so Braveheart is just a great example of this. Braveheart, tons of violence in that movie rated R. And uh, there are many Christian colleges that would you know, limit the uh, uh, screening of different films. So anything R was not permitted, but with the exception of Braveheart. In fact, they'd have entire dorms that had Braveheart themes, right? And so it's kind of pick and choose. Um, yet this, this idea that uh, culture is out there and you know, culture is is to uh, to be opposed. It's it's secular in that we have God's truth on the inside. It's a very powerful kind of self identity for many evangelicals. So I think one of the powerful things that this book did was it shows uh, evangelicals who really come up in in with that understanding just how much their own you know quote unquote biblical views have in fact been shaped by uh, secular culture. I mean, ultimately, I hope that this this helps. Christians to go back to the scriptures with a more critical lens of understanding how what has been packaged and sold as biblical masculinity, as biblical Christianity, in fact, has been deeply shaped by uh, these cultural ideals that may or may not be biblical, that may or may not actually undercut the core teachings of the scriptures.
2: Kristen, you had a lot of familiarity with these cultures already through your experiences growing up and interactions with all of these subcultures. But despite that, what things surprised you the most when you took a deep dive into some of these cultures as you started your research?
0: Yeah, uh... You know, I, I, you're right. Like I, I was familiar with some of the contours of this world, but but I'm a researcher and much of this book, or this is not memoir. I learned a lot as I researched this. I learned things that I hadn't uh, <laughs> known before. And um, I, I would say one of the most surprising things to me as I got deeper into this research Was just how important the question of authority was for uh, several generations of conservative evangelicals. You know, going back to, I, I thought I was writing about gender, very quickly realized I'm writing also about race. And, um, and, and also about, you know, this concept of authority going back to, you know, Dobson's early writer writings or Bill Gothard and, and everything came down to authority, who has the right to wield authority and it's gendered and and race comes in here. But um, when I, when I really allowed that to come into focus, I was startled uh, to be honest, because what I was reading uh, about, you know, God-ordained social hierarchies, the social order that must be defended and enforced, it really seemed uh, anti-democratic to me at its root, and uh, it it really seemed drifting into authoritarianism, to be honest. And when I was confronting that in the sources, I really didn't know what to do with it. It felt extreme. It felt, you know, can I say this? This is what I'm seeing. What do I do with this? This isn't the narrative, certainly, that I grew up with. Um, But that's something that I kept bumping up against, and that's something that keeps coming back to me really in light of uh, the events of recent years.
2: So now that the book has come out and it's ignited all of these great conversations across the country, around the world, what surprised you about the reception of your work?
0: Yeah. So it has been somewhat surprising. I, um, in the weeks before I released the book, I mean, it went through a thorough legal vetting. Kudos to my publisher for providing the resources for that. Um, went through a comprehensive legal review to make sure that everything was very carefully evidenced and everything was um, said exactly uh, <laughs> correctly. And uh, at that point in the process, uh the lawyer who worked on the project warned me to prepare myself for vicious trolling um to really lock things down um and so i was bracing myself and you know as a scholar too as you write a book you're always thinking about your critics right those are the louder loudest voices for me i was mostly thinking about scholarly critics you know just trying to get the historiography right trying to make sure my arguments were really tight um but also thinking about yeah all the people i i i i studied this world i i i know Know how the tactics kind of play out. And I was, I was really bracing myself for pretty harsh uh, attacks. Wow. Uh, for the most part, that hasn't happened. And uh, the surprising thing, I guess, is that the book's biggest fans are evangelicals themselves um, and many conservative white evangelicals who are able to receive this book with incredible humility and introspection. And it really has been those uh, conservative evangelicals, including a ton of conservative white evangelical men who have um, promoted this book in their own spaces through their little podcasts, through church Bible studies, through pastors groups, just bringing it to others and saying, hey guys, we have to read this. And they may not agree with 100% of what's in the book. Most probably don't, um, but they're able to see that there's a challenge here. And And, you know, whether they remain complementarian, whether they, you know, continue to uphold their particular beliefs, they can understand that there are tools here in this cultural analysis to help them become better and more faithful Christians. And so that's been incredibly rewarding to see in this highly polarized moment that there are so many people willing to receive the book with um, curiosity, openness, and humility.
2: My graduate advisor once said the great advantage historians enjoy is that all their subjects are safely dead. But with <laughs> contemporary history, <laughs> that advantage—totally
0: like to- new experience for me—and it's been fascinating and terrifying. Right, my first book everybody wrote about was dead, and that's what we're used to doing. And you're you're you know, and so pluses and minuses here—it's absolutely fascinating. As somebody you know, as a trained historian who has never had my subjects speak back to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would love to know what Catherine Bushnell, the subject of my first historical book, you know, thinks about what I said about her. Did I get it right, you know? And so to have the opportunity now to have these main characters read and respond to the book, you know, it was, it was actually quite thrilling a few weeks ago when Russell Moore was asked by the Washington Post uh, what he thought of, of this book, because he's been one of my my readers where I'm like, I think I, think I can help explain things for you. <laughs> and, you know, just really wondering, you know, how are you receiving this? How does this does this, you know, really uh, connect to your experience? And in fact, it did. And so, you know, those moments are really quite thrilling for me as a historian to have the book itself now become a part of the conversation that I've tracked for so long, and really to become a part of the story. It's unnerving, it's bewildering. And at the same time, it's, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, the wide resonance um has been really cool to see and it kind of gets at my next question the theme question of this episode is what have we lost in our desire to win and then i was immediately thinking well who's we there yes. um and members of of the audience of in all things may or may not identify with that we um and it's clear that as we've mentioned several times you were writing about and to and four white evangelicals many of whom have resonated with the book but one of the things that I keep on hearing as I listen to discussions around it, especially in more critical discussions, is something like, well, the problem is real, but is it really mainstream? Yeah. Uh, so is this about us or is it about just some of us or is it about the worst of us? Um, yeah. And I know that's a, a question that as a historian of evangelicalism, you wrestle with all the time. Who gets yeah. to say what the center is? Yeah. So how do you approach that question of establishing the, the we uh, of evangelicalism?
0: Yes, one of my favorite things to talk about. So, thanks for asking this question. First, um, I want to clarify though that this is a book, yes, um, kind of about white evangelicals, not primarily for white evangelicals. Uh, I mean, I, I went outside of Christian publishing, I, I had Christian publishers who were eager to publish this book. Uh, i went outside of academic publishing i uh, went with a secular trade publisher and so that forced me to keep a much broader audience uh so you know even my editor not from this world at all and so there are several points where he's just like i don't know what these words mean you know <laughs> and so i had to translate that that was precisely my 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 purpose so essentially the intended audience as far as my publisher is concerned for this book was anybody who reads the new york times right anybody who's just interested in these big issues who wants to understand uh American politics and religion. Um, uh, and, and, and that's that's the primary audience. That said, in my proposal, I did insist that there was a strong secondary ar- uh, audience here. And it would be white evangelicals themselves. Um, so um, but the book itself is not written. I think if it were written, primarily to white evangelicals, it, it would take a different shape. Mm. Uh, it would probably have a different subtitle and <laughs> it would probably have a bit more of um, kind of normative reflection of, you know here's what the Bible really says, here's what you know, let's reason together here and, and that's not this is a work of history. Um, so I just wanted to uh, uh, clarify that uh, and, and that's actually unusual because I think that there's such a strong culture, um, within evangelicalism and this community of discourse right where where we talk with each other an awful lot and so i think there's an assumption that we are the primary audience and that we we ought to be um so i just want to you know de decenter that just that's a little great. bit
1: yeah that's very helpful
0: um but then yes uh this question of uh how how does one define evangelicalism? Where is the center in, and what is fringe? That was absolutely a question I struggled with as I researched this book and as I wrote it. And so I tried to make that struggle visible in the book, right? This is something that I addressed throughout the book from the introduction and then, and then on, um, uh, th- throughout really almost every chapter. And, um, A couple of things I would say, one is, I mean, take the example of Bill Gothard, whom I mentioned before. When I set out to write this book, I had zero intention of including Bill Gothard in this narrative because I thought he is so fringe, right? Uh, I mean, talk about authoritarian and misogynistic and racist and all of these things. And yes, fringe, fringe, fringe. And then in having conversations and interviewing people and doing the research, I kept having people come back to me and say, you are going to include Bill Gothard, right? People that I did not consider fringe at all, other scholars, other you know people I knew from my childhood. Um, Bill Gothard is a figure who was often just beneath the surface by design, right? He wasn't a public facing kind of individual. You had to attend his seminars. It was this kind of like he tightly controlled, Um uh kind of his his community and yeah his influence was quite profound and so what i ended up doing was yes okay i've listened i'm going to include bill gothard but i'm going to include him to ask this question and and make this question visible so he's in a chapter with james dobson and that's where i really kind of test out this where is the center what is the fringe gothard i'm never going to call him the center of american evangelicalism i'm going to say he is fringe he is extreme james dobson very much the center. I mean, I would say if you want to understand American evangelicalism over the last half century, he needs to be at the center of our narrative. In many cases, in many histories, he's not. Um, that's another uh, topic. But um, so Dobson's center. And then I look at what they're saying. And what we can see is what they're saying on the nature of authority, on the problems of of American society, on gender, on hierarchy, very similar one slightly more extreme, the other more mainstream, but there is so much overlap. And so that's really what I'm teasing out here is, is where is the center? Uh, I do that again, later in the book, looking at somebody like Doug Wilson. And I I go out and say, he would be offended if, if you called him mainstream, right? I mean, that's not what he's after. He's not, he's extreme, Uh, again, misogynistic, racist, um, And yet he's platformed by Christianity today. He is endorsed, defended by mainstream folks like John Piper, right? And so so this is the question, where is the mainstream and where is the fringe? And I think that one of the things you can see through this book is if there ever was a kind of respectable mainstream, and that's an if, I think the center does start to shift, certainly in the last couple of decades. But there was always this real populist element that respectable evangelicals Kind of poo pooed, right? Ignored, like you know, because they wanted to place themselves at the center. Christianity today, the flagship magazine of American evangelicalism, but you've got an awful lot of televangelists out there, and you've got you've got these counter forces, you've got this whole popular culture. So you know, where is the center? Is it really the elites that you know like to define themselves as the center, the intellectuals, or is there this populist movement that we really have to um look at? And then we can ask, okay. How do the two interact? And then ultimately, particularly in the last few years, we have to say, you know, uh, what is exerting actual influence? Which forces are are really pushing the conversations, are defining the boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not. And what we've seen particularly in the last five years is a number of these respectable evangelical institutions and individuals who thought they were the leaders of the movement discover to their uh, horror that they are not. And that if they try to steer the ship in a different direction, they're going to be without a job. They're going to be pushed out of their um, churches, pastors discovering this, that they actually wield very little influence over the people in their pews who are getting their religious formation from this popular culture, from talk radio, from secular media and the like. And so really, that's a big question of this book that I try to tease out. What is the center? Who gets to define it? And um, hopefully this book will will kind of disrupt some of the Givens in a way that I think makes sense in light of what we've seen in recent years.
1: There's so much there that I'd love I'd love to unpack um, just because as you're talking about Bill Gothard, I'm realizing the first time I heard of him was in a Filipino immigrant church from a Filipino yes. pastor. and there's a whole conversation just about how you know you said it started out being about gender and it ended up also being about race, you know because these yes. things are are bound up together. And if I can kind of focus the lens in a little bit of a different way, you know, I sort of grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist church to the right of evangelicalism, if (laughs) if you can imagine that, you know, we were sort of suspicious of Dobson, but he was on the radio (laughs) Uh, and other immigrant communities. So, you know, we're at Dorit, you're at Calvin, uh, Mm -hmm. founded and fueled in many part by these Dutch immigrant communities. How do you see that fitting into this picture? Uh, How do you place yourself with respect to the picture? And how do you Place our communities. Are we adjacent to it? Are we complicit in it? Part, of, I guess. Yeah. How How do you tease out the the Dorts and the Calvin's?
0: Yeah, I would say yes and yes, adjacent and complicit. Uh, so I, you know, I grew up in Sioux Center, uh, and I never identified as an evangelical. Not sure I even you know came across that word. Um, all that much growing up. Uh, if anything now, you know, full disclosure, my dad was a theology professor at Dort, uh, an ordained minister. And so I had a, a, a pretty theological, Uh, and distinctively reformed religious formation, unusually so, I think it's fair to say. Uh, And my mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. And so, no, I grew up really defining myself and my tradition over against American Christianity, over against American evangelicalism in particular, right? We in the reformed community and in the Dutch reformed community and at Dort were better, we were smarter than those evangelicals out there. So that was my religious identity. That said, when I went off to graduate school and went to study with George Marsden, um, I met real evangelicals who were also there to study with George Marsden, a leading scholar, Christian scholar of evangelicalism. These guys were coming from Moody Bible Institute. They were coming from uh, Wheaton and uh, Bob Jones IV was a student there when I started. And so, you know, I, I started to know, oh, there's, there's this whole other real culture the point of connection that I had with my classmates was through the popular culture. And that's when I realized, you know, I grew up in Sioux Center. Um, we had one bookstore, True Vine, uh, You know, <laughs> as evangelical as you get when you look at what's on the shelves there. I grew up only listening to Christian music. I thought the top 40 was sinful and I wanted to be a, a good Christian. And so I only listened to Petra and Michael Card and Amy Grant and jars of clay, right? This is dating me. Uh, so, um, you know, so I was also, even though I didn't identify as an evangelical, even though I thought I came from this distinctive theological tradition, and I did, you know, my favorite class at Dort was John van der uh Calvin's uh, Institutes. So, um, you know, I, I was formed in a distinctive tradition but I was also totally immersed in this uh, evangelical popular culture. and I, I think that that background is uh, helpful to understand how I came to write this book. On the one hand, yes, familiar, I'm I'm adjacent, I'm immersed in a, a certain part of it, but I also always had this kind of independent place to stand this ability to say actually this is not my faith. this is not my Jesus Christ. this is not, biblical Christianity as I have come to understand it. And so in, but not of, I, I guess is the best way of characterizing that. And I think that's true of, of, you know, the Christian Reformed Church of Sioux Center, uh, you know, white evangelicals, if you want to call them that. And I think it's, it's appropriate in many ways to do so. I will also say that in the last 20 or 30 years, so I've, I haven't lived in Sioux Center in a long time. I visit a lot, but I haven't lived there. I would say that just these broader cultural forces have meant that there are now probably fewer distinctions that could be made between, you know, Dutch reformed and CRC folks and this broader swath of white evangelicalism because of precisely the forces that I detail in this book, that this popular evangelicalism through consumer culture really has swamped kind of this distinctive subculture so that that it's not all that distinctive anymore. And I will have to say, I'm writing about this in my next book, but I've done some research into KDCR and the role of KDCR in kind of defining what, what kind of, you know, distinctive voice in the community and how that has been utterly swamped by, you know, other Christian radio coming in and now the pressures on KBCR to change and, you know, non-commercial commercial radio and things like that. And it's just been fascinating. So I would say that, you know, uh, uh the differences now are not that great. And I would say that most folks, as far as I can tell, who attend Christian reform churches, um, are, um, Uh, are not adjacent, but would very much be in the heart of uh, white evangelicalism today.
2: We went to the Pacific Ocean this summer. And one of the things that always amazes me about the ocean is how far down the beach it can move you without your realizing it. And as someone who's been in this area quite a bit over the last few years, it's amazing to me how much the culture has moved people in the regard you're talking about, and yet they don't realize it. Yes. Like they haven't noticed how far they've moved past some of those old signposts, some of those old markers. And the day may come and they suddenly look around and realize, hey, people are right. We have moved. You know, these currents have taken us further down. But, yeah, it's incredible how far you can move culturally, spiritually, theologically without even realizing it as these forces shape people. Yeah, you know, we're talking about how, you know, the book Jesus and John Way it was not intended primarily for an evangelical audience, but you were trying to reach sort of a broader popular audience, and it really wasn't intended as a work strictly for scholars or for historians either. And yet it has such important things to say about the way historians approach this field of cultural studies of evangelicalism, cultural studies of religious ph- phenomena in general. Uh, what lessons do you think Jesus and John Wayne offers to historians and scholars So, what kind of things uh, do we need to take notice of in the way that you approach sources, the way that you interpret the raw materials that we all work with? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest historiographical intervention that Jesus and John Wayne makes, uh, so kind of changing the conversations of how uh, historians have, have covered evangelicalism. Really involves paying attention, serious attention to popular culture. And if you know anything about the field of evangelical studies, an awful lot of white evangelicals went into the study of white evangelicalism. That's essentially what I did, right? I went off to graduate school and ended up studying with George Marsden, you know, the preeminent Christian scholar and scholar of American evangelicalism. And, uh, and and we remain good friends today and he's been incredibly formative in, in so many ways to me. Um, but at the same time, then I think that what happened is the field became dominated by kind of a certain perspective. Um, and that perspective was white evangelical and I mean, to use a word that may uh, offend, but, you know, elite, you know, intellectual elite we're scholars. That's, that's kind of, we have to <laughs> have to accept that. Right. And so the people who went on, you know, my classmates who went on to study evangelicalism, even they, though they came from that world, they often came there through, they went on to seminary first. I was one of the only PhD students in my program who hadn't already gone on to seminary. So, their understanding, their experience of evangelicalism personally, that then shapes the way they write the the story, is deeply theological right? Because they care so deeply about that. I did too. When I went off to graduate school, I wanted to study religious and intellectual history because I was convinced that that was the history that most mattered because it did to me. That's how I was shaped. Again, my dad, a theology professor, and I went to Dort and it was all theology and and continental philosophy and, you know, this intellectual engagement. And I loved it. And then my first semester in graduate school, I was introduced to the study of women's history and a cultural study of gender and understanding how ideas of masculinity and femininity change over time and how popular culture shapes values and, and ideals. And I thought, oh my gosh, of course, this is the history that really matters, right? So what I ended up doing is combining the fields. I became a historian of religion and gender. I care deeply about theology. My first book is a history of, of feminist theology in many ways. But I've also been convinced that theology is not the only thing that matters and that these cultural influences really shape us. And so I think that's that's one of the, the interventions that this book does, uh, it, that it makes is it doesn't take at face value the, you know, claims about what is evangelicalism. Um, if evangelical leaders, again, these elite, these intellectuals, these theologians themselves will say it is all about the theology. Evangelicals are defined by their theology. And so you pull out the Bebbington quadrilateral and you talk about conversionism and biblicism, right? And, and you know, the spiel, it, but then you look at, real evangelicals and first you look at some survey data and it turns out an alarming number of evangelicals are heretics according to any traditional uh, uh definition that you have high rates of theological illiteracy throughout american evangelicals and throughout american christianity which you know you could lament but you should also then pay attention to because if you have such high rates of theological illiteracy does it actually make sense to say that evangelicalism is is defined by its theology Or is something else at play? And and so that's really what Jesus and John Wayne does. It doesn't dismiss theology. Theology still is important, but it is never an independent variable. Right. So, what is is deemed as biblical? How the scriptures are interpreted? Which Bible verses are completely abandoned? Or like, yeah, that doesn't apply to us. Turn the other cheek. Ha! No, not not relevant. Right? And which ones are we gonna? We love Revelation and the Warrior Christ. You know. So, so we just have to not take at face value claims that this is biblical Christianity. That this defines, you know, Orthodox Christianity, and um, that theology is kind of standalone at the heart of this movement.
1: But let me shift directions a little bit to go back to something that Scott said about moving away. You know, as I said, the theme question of this is what have we lost in our desire to win? And as a reflect, sort of the way that I grew up, which, again, was a little bit more um, fundamentalist and we were withdrawing from culture, you know, trying to kind of form our own subcultures in some way. And then now I'm sort of in a reform tradition that is a little bit more like, let's go transform culture. Yeah, I'm thinking about all the ways that comes together, um, those two impulses that you find within evangelicalism. Uh, how would you answer that question? What, what have we lost in our desire to win?
0: What have we lost in our desire to win? <laughs> I'd say everything. Everything. If so, here I'll get a little theological, uh, which I, I, I restrain myself in the book. But but it's it's evident, I think, in the the critical framing that, as I understand, the heart of the gospel, it's about you know the incarnation. It's about God becoming human, divesting himself of power, uh, and that is what is so radical about Christianity. So radical about about the gospel message, and it is in- incredibly countercultural. Right, I'm a Calvinist, so I I'm comfortable with this. That we all of our impulses are towards self-aggrandizement. It's towards seizing power, claiming power, and justifying that in the name of righteousness, right? Calvinists should be very comfortable with this framework and we should be very self-critical. And so what, what we've seen in American Christianity and, um, in particular strands, especially is this desire to, um, whether it's withdrawing or, as you say, you know, transforming culture, reclaiming culture, um, when when it comes uh, to be about winning, about asserting power, maintaining that power, um, using it in coercive ways, I think it ceases to become gospel Christianity, and and so everything is lost. That I, I think Christians have to have the confidence. In uh, the work of Christ, in the work of the Spirit, and in the radical just attraction of that incredibly countercultural message, and we need to lead with that. And and I mean, one of the um, mo- one of my favorite quotes in the book is it comes in the last chapter, and it's uh, Rachel Den Hollander, who's who's talking about sexual abuse cases in particular, but but I think it applies more broadly because she says. Um, And she's, she's pushing back against those who are like, cover this up. Don't, don't go there because we have to protect the witness of the church. We have to protect this man's ministry. We have to protect Christianity. And she says, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need your protection. Jesus does not need your protection. All Jesus asks for is your obedience. And what does that look like? It looks like telling the truth and pursuing justice. That's, it. So so it's, it's have faith, right? That's the Jesus that we're following. That's what it means to be faithful to the suffering servant. And that's where our attention should be focused. And that will be the witness. We don't have to protect the witness of corrupt institutions. We need to live this witness in radical ways.
2: Kristen, it seems to me that one of the great benefits, one of the great effects of Jesus and John Wade has been to kind of find these people in these little pockets all throughout evangelicalism who thought they were alone, you know, who were in situations where there was gaslighting and they thought they were the only one experiencing these things. And then suddenly, no, there's so many other people out there who have seen these things who have been through them. So in light of that and in light of people, making these discoveries, some of whom had no idea these cultures were out there. What can places like the places we teach Christian colleges and universities do to help prepare students better to navigate these cultures, to be aware of toxic masculinity in the church, to be soft and light working against the influence of these forces?
0: Mm, That's such a good question. And it's a tough question. Um, First, I'll say yes. Uh, I mean, the Again, that's a surprising effect of this book. Um, as far as I'm concerned, is is how deeply it's touched so many people. Uh, so I started getting letters from readers about three days after the book released, and it has not let up. Every day, I get several letters from readers, and these are incredible testimonies. Uh, you know, they'll include their own life stories, how it overlaps with the narrative, how they're struggling to come to terms with maybe abuses that they've suffered. Um, some of the most poignant are, um, particularly men who are writing to acknowledge the many ways they've been complicit in propping up these structures of oppression and abuse. And, um, uh, and these are coming from, uh, you know, all across the country, various denominations, they're coming from around the world. And, um, and so it really has been, um, remarkable. So the conversation is happening. Um, what can institutions do, What I will say is it seems to be much harder for institutions to engage in this kind of reckoning that I think our moment demands. I I see a lot of enormous conviction on the part of individuals, bravery, courage to examine their own role in this, uh, to question some of their own values. Institutions have a much harder time of it. Um, I think that there are so many pressures that the institution is trying to protect itself, maintain itself for good reason, right? You know, we want DORT to be around in the future. Um, I remember actually when I was a student there, one of the really shocking things that um, one of my professors, again, John Vanderstout, said at one point, kind of a throwaway comment that just struck me. I mean, I loved Dort, loved, love, loved love my time there. Absolutely all in. It was the best place. And at one point in class, he, he made this throwaway comment about how Dort isn't going to be around forever. And it shouldn't be. Institutions are not made to be eternal. They are made to rise up, to meet a need, and then they will go away at some point and something else God will provide. And, and you know, that's just the way history works. And that's the way, and I remember just like wanting to fight against that. Like, no, no, you know, the, the, we're going to, we're going to make sure that this is, you know, because I think there's, you know, when, when you love something and you participate in it and you value it and you receive good things from it, you really want to defend it. And that's not really what we're called to do. And and so I think that there has been far too much caution exercised, too much self-censoring and um, to not speak truth, even when uh, we really need to be speaking truth, that that we need to, um, uh, institutions too need to maybe be prophetic and not primarily concerned about alienating constituents or donors. Uh, In our own spaces, we need to very consciously bring in a diversity of voices because it is very easy um, for those within a particular institution, within a particular subculture, within a particular tradition to want to, you know, to act in self. Uh, preserving modes, and to be blind to the ways in which so many of our ideals that we are calling biblical, that we are saying we are doing in Christ's name, are in fact not wholly compatible with what we are called to do as followers of Christ. So we need to be truth tellers, and we need to bring in a diversity of voices, um, and not just bring in those voices, even that that terminology is problematic. We need to go into spaces where we are not the dominant group. We need to learn, and maybe we need to stay. In those spaces. And maybe we just need to remain as learners rather than assuming uh, the mantle of leader.
2: So as we've said several times, there have been a lot of really interesting conversations that have ensued as the book has come out. And uh, there are other books now that are coming out that are connected to the same general themes. Beth Allison Barr just released one recently on biblical womanhood. So as you look at these evolving conversations, uh, what issues, what ideas do you think need to be addressed deeper that you would like to explore further or that you'd like to see other scholars explore further in the future?
0: Oh, there's so many things that I want to have done. Um, So one of the things that I would love to see are some really good ethnographic studies. Um, I went big picture. I would love to have a better understanding, deeper understanding of what this all looks like on the ground. Um, There's some ethnographic studies of the Promise Keepers movement that I use that I found incredibly helpful. But mostly, uh, you know, I've been really curious about how you can have within one church, within one family, you know, people who are seemingly formed by the same, values end up veering off in such different directions. And I, I would really like to have a better kind of scholarly understanding of some of the dynamics that, that, uh, shape this, this broader movement. Um, so ethnographic studies would be super helpful. I think, um, I think that within the church and within um, kind of critics of evangelicalism, I think we do need to reckon with the role of institutions, right? That it's, it's one thing to, you know, deconstruction is a, is a popular word right now and to, to pull things apart and to say, this is wrong. This is a mistake, you know, and as a historian, I'm super comfortable in that mode. That's kind of what we do. I'm much less comfortable in the, the, Place that I've actually found myself in now, where people are asking me for what should the church do? What do we do next? Mm-hmm. And that's where I kind of, um, well, first of all, bump up against my own limitations. I'm a historian; I can tell you about what happened. I'm not so good at telling you about what should happen. But also, you know, this nagging question that I do have of what is the role of institutions? That so often historically we have seen those those institutions um, go bad, um, be used in in corrupt ways, um, be used by corrupt leaders. Um, And then supported uh, by communities um, to very um, disastrous ends in many cases. But, you know, institutions are important. They are part of uh, our kind of creational structures, if you will. They get things done. They preserve uh, values and, and, you know, shape the next generation. So I think we really need to take a careful look at um, institutions and have much better models. Uh, we also need much, much better models of leadership. I think this whole leader, leadership discourse in Christian circles, I mean, we can talk about in business circles too, but I won't, but in Christian circles. It really has to be dissected. And it's hard because the people who wield a lot of power tend to love this discourse of leadership because it makes them feel very good about the power that they wield. And so I think that we need to be, um, again, Calvinists, we can do this. We need to be much more critical about uh, this, this kind of language and what it encourages, what it allows. So I guess those are some of the things that I would like to see. Also, uh, you know, more attention to race. More More attention to the ways in which our religious values, our biblical truths are shaped by our racial identities. And this should not be a controversial statement, right? That, you know, I, I adore, I read the works of Leslie Newbegin and the, the gospel in a pluralist society. And I've read the works of missiologist, Andrew Walls, and the gospel is always enculturated. That's part of being human, uh, right? We all respond. There is a truth out there and we receive that and we respond in our cultural locations. That is true for all of us. It's easy for folks to see, um, uh, especially Kind of white American Christians when you look at missionary contexts. But the cool thing about, about Leslie Newbegin is he brought it back to white Western Christianity too. And that's, it's obvious once you have eyes to see. So we should be much more curious, however we are, wherever we are located, how our own understandings of biblical truth, in fact, reflect this combination of biblical truth that we are receiving in our cultural context and race is a primary way in which many Americans experience that identity and are contextualized. So we need to just ask how do things that are packaged and sold as Christian, in fact, reflect particular white Christian American values. And the only way we can have eyes to see that is to listen to what people from outside of our own context are telling us because they can tell us very, very clearly. And so we need to be having those conversations. We need to be bringing ourselves into spaces where we have those conversations, where we can, again, listen in and have much more insight Into our own religious formation, eyes to see, which ultimately uh, can help us be more faithful Christians. We're always going to be culturally contextualized. But right now, we have in this 21st century, we have this enormous opportunity that we are not isolated. And we, we might be geographically, maybe maybe not. Um but we all have, you know, at our fingertips now the power to hear other people's stories, to hear mm-hmm. brothers and sisters in Christ from other cultural locations tell us how they understand the gospel and we should we should absolutely be making use of this and it's not a danger it's not bringing division it is simply opening ourselves up to the larger body of christ and seeking as part of the broader community the broader body of christ to ultimately be more
1: faithful followers of christ our guest has been dr christian Cobus dumay the book is jesus and john wayne new york times best-selling book um, and if somehow you have not um, had a chance to read it, uh, we, we give it a high recommendation. It is riveting, troubling in the best way, convicting, and hope that it will be uh, generative for you as well. Uh, Kristen, thanks so much for uh, joining us.
0: Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be back in Dort Spaces, even if only remotely. Uh, so thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Von Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.